Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I am a nationally certified psychiatric technician, level one. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I am a professional member of the National Association of Psychometrists. Professional development requires ongoing dialogue and reflection. So hit play and lean in as we discuss education research and drink beer. Today we are drinking Guinness Draft Stout from the Gin- from Guinness and Company. Oh, I'm pouring it and I'm getting that just just um, uncannily incredible visual experience of what pouring a Guinness looks like. You've got those bubbles all the way down at the bottom of the glass and you get to watch them. Uh, yeah, so yeah, longtime lover of Guinness. Actually, when I was in college, um, our preferred um, hangout location through the second half was an Irish pub uh, that was downtown at Dempsey's, and so they always had uh, Guinness available. What are we doing today, leader? The future of teaching depends on training future educators, but pairing student teachers with effective veterans can be challenging. New research allays some fears from veteran teachers by showing that taking a student teacher does not negatively impact classroom outcomes. Later, we explore a critique of scripted curricula that shows their inconsistency with democratic values, even at a theoretical level. Finally, we consider our options to build community in the waiting time before Zoom call starts. Let's get started. Our first segment, we'll be reading, Will Mentoring a Student-Teacher Harm My Evaluation Scores? Effects of Serving as a Cooperating Teacher on Evaluation Metrics. This was published by Matthew Ronfeldt, Emanuel Bardelli, Stacey Brockman, and Hannah Mullman in the American Education Research Journal uh, in 2020. So the... This paper is about the relationship between student teachers and cooperating teachers, which is something that is actually has been studied quite uh, quite well in the past. Uh, you know, leading us to the general conclusion that the student teachers' experience and efficacy is related to the quality of uh, instructor and efficacy of their cooperating teacher and their. That's a well-established relationship in education literature. Well, so a lot of the material to this point has looked at the impact on uh, the student teachers for their placement. So do these student teachers grow in their professional abilities more with this teacher over that teacher or in this setting over that setting uh, or these responsibilities versus those responsibilities? Um, But there's actually um, a dramatic paucity of research about the impact of mentoring student teachers on the mentors themselves uh, and specifically on some of the outcomes by which they're judged. And so uh, the authors kind of describe in their introduction, um, especially in their context, which was in Tennessee, they reported that some of the cooperating teachers were hesitant or had some anxiety associated with mentoring because they perceived that mentoring a student teacher would actually hurt uh, some of the measures by which they were evaluated. And so these, these authors said, well, the research doesn't say anything about that. So they took an approach to evaluate what, if any, impact does taking a student teacher have on the experience and evaluation and development of the mentoring teachers. They had three primary questions. Uh, Does taking a student teacher affect how you were going to be evaluated during that course? 
Does taking a student teacher affect your students' efficacy in your content? Um, are different cooperating teachers affected differently by taking a student teacher? And um, how does taking a student teacher affect the cooperating teacher's performances in subsequent years? Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 in fact, we could probably even just use that tape. But the what, I, what, what I wanted to say to you uh, was uh, so Tennessee. Uh, I learned a lot about um, Tennessee's educational system because uh, I haven't ever had any occasion to really get into the circumstance of Tennessee before. Um, and it, they've got a really, really, um, I'm going to say robust data collection and evaluation system uh, for their teachers. And specifically, a lot of the data that was being analyzed here was about value-added models. There's, there's philosophical tension in the premise that we, sh we can and that we should uh, go about isolating the actual measurable impact of any individual teacher in a classroom. Um, and so uh, Tennessee does. I didn't, e I didn't even know that before we read this paper. Um, but I, just, I feel a lot of tension. And the authors acknowledge that to their credit. Um, the authors in this paper, I thought, did a particularly good job um, acknowledging tensions where they saw them, acknowledging gaps in understanding or um, their degree of confidence, whether it be speculation or evidence-supported claims. I thought that the authors did a wonderful job contextualizing everything that was in this paper. And so they, they, they do acknowledge even this tension in the value-added models. Um, but for me, I felt, uh, I felt it act activate some, some cortisol in my brain when I saw that was going to be a fundamental measure in this paper was uh, I currently fall on the side of I don't think that we should be using value-added measures. Um, and while they considered them what I, in what I thought were responsible ways in this paper, I just I felt some tension there. Yeah, well, especially since um, measuring measuring the the um, impact of a teacher is so much greater than how do these kids do on a test of that content the following year. Um, uh, like there are some interactions between students and teachers that may never become acknowledged that are just revolutionary and life-changing or even potentially life-saving uh, that we just are above the uh, above the line or above our ability to measure. So it, it's it's really it's just it's just sort of this the struggle to make that more measurable and tangible is going to be a a long term uh, discipline. And so you know we're going to try to get better at, at measuring teacher efficacy. But where we are now. Like we 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 barely we barely have what we might call uh, a reliable measurements of student ability. <laughs> so, like measuring the effect of teachers on the changes in student ability when we're not even really super confident in all of our metrics regarding student ability is is just seems like several tiers down from from something we should be confident about. This is sort of getting wrapped around the axle about like one paragraph in this 45 page paper, but um, it's such a central piece of their measurements that it, uh, it I kept thinking about it over and over again. And so I wanted to make sure that I acknowledged it. Um, 
I want to make sure I acknowledge it because there, there, there are pros and cons, right? Like they had an incredibly robust uh, sample because all of Tennessee is doing this. So they were able to do an analysis of like 400,000 observations because everybody had it. And there's definite value in that. So, um, so it's a tension. It's a tension. Uh, I want to jump to the, I want to jump to the chase here. I want to get to, to the like meat of, of their conclusions. I, at least what I think is the, the, the should, the actionable one. And that is, uh, n- no, taking, taking on a student teacher doesn't give you negative reflections in your evaluation, nor does it reduce the performance of your students. The according to this, these data is important um, because part of the reason that I chose this paper to talk about in the first place is um, I've had some pretty powerful experiences working with student teachers and the way that that has impacted my own practice. And I know that you've had, have you had student teachers or you've just done mentorship? See, I have not had a student teacher. So I do have an emotional relationship to this paper that I haven't yet discussed or explored on tape yet. I, these are all swirling around in my head of uh, we shouldn't be afraid to mentor student teachers. I, I think that's in this paper and I, I, I'm, I was already there this morning. I didn't need another paper to feel that, but I feel good about having a pretty robust data set to support that. But what are the benefits of, of hosting a student teacher? I'm still, I'm still grappling with because not everything that I think is true was born out in this data set. Uh, we'll just read the earlier paper. <laughs> It'll support what you want to say. Yeah, if I if I only read the research that agrees with my pre-existing conditions, then what do we even need the research for? <laughs> Have you ever hosted a student teacher? Oh, uh, right. And then we get to this question. No, no, I have not. And um, I, I, there's a certain you have to be in the field for, for a certain amount of time before you can. And uh, those, you know, and we, I got to that point. And then when I got to that point, I. I started teaching classes that require a higher level of certification to cover. Uh, and so now that, you know, I teach college biology and this year AP biology, I'm less comfortable. I am afraid of underserving my students. I guess that is a type of fear. Also, also I'm greedy. I love my kids. Of being with my kids. I love doing my job. Like, I definitely don't, I definitely would not take one this year because, you know, with a five month starvation of student interaction, I want it all. Even if it's, even if it's just, even if I'm just trying to like sew the, the, no, wrap the wire monkey around the greatest, warmest fleece that I possibly can, I want to do it. I want to be that, that, I want to do it. I want that time with my kids, even through Zoom. I want it. I want it so bad right now that I just, I just, I'm too greedy. I'm too greedy. And when we come back next year, I'm going to covet, now leave him that asterisk, in the hopes that we come back next year, I want, I covet that in-classroom experience. I want it. I want to be the one in the room seeing their faces. So uh, no, I just, uh, I covet my classroom. That's really what it is. It's not a fear. It's just, I covet them. They're mine. They're my kids. I want them. I want to be their teacher. I don't want to share it. That's probably why I like mentorship more than um, than taking a, a student teacher. 
because I really do like uh, interacting with a novice teacher in solving the problems that they are encountering as they're encountering them and working them with them to help them find solutions and having discussions about what's important in a classroom and what's important to them and how they can pursue it. And I really love that. Yeah, when I had student teachers, you were always basically another mentor teacher to them. <laughs> yeah, I love the interactions. I just don't want to give up my kids. I don't want them to. I, they're my kids. Uh, I don't know uh, if that uh, there's I'm sure there's some kind of flaw of pride in there somewhere. Um, but uh, I guess I've got this identity thing all wrapped up with my relationship to those kids. Your course assignments are real like the that's 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 and and that's a. Uh... You know, because this whole paper is set in a larger context of um, we really need our best teachers to be training our new teachers. That's kind of like that's the largest conversation that this is set in. And so this whole study was about how can we alleviate the fears and anxieties of our best teachers so they'll be more willing to mentor our new teachers. That's really what this is intended to be is don't worry about your evaluation measures. It will be fine. Will you take a student teacher, please? And that's pretty real. And there, and you know, the, a, a huge portion of the, you know, many teachers, but especially our most effective teachers love teaching and love our students. And so they want to be in the classroom, just like you're describing. And so you have to bring a crowbar with you when you're going to try to, you know, make some room for a student teacher that I've done that. I mean, I've, I've had those conversations and it's real. Um, and so I think there's another piece of it that the just the career trajectory dynamics of the U.S. education system is really effective. Teachers get moved to um, prestigious assignments like college and AP biology, like elected, like highly specialized electives that are not that are not appropriate for student teachers to be teaching. And so like we put all of our best teachers in situations where they can't be mentoring student teachers um, for, you know, for logistic, for logistical reasons. And so um, it's hard, it's hard, but it's really, it's really important for the, uh, the long-term stability of our profession. And so um, I, you've got to recognize that, right? Like if, if we take our best teachers and we take away the things they like about the job, we're going to lose our best teachers. So, so like that, that's not, a, that's not something to be ignored. Um, but we've got to navigate that tension because if we don't train new teachers, we're also going to lose this profession. What'd you think of this paper? I thought you were going to like this paper more than it seems like you did. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. So this paper did a lot of crossing its T's and dotting its I's. It did a lot of it. It said, okay, this is what we find, but you, you do have to accept that we're doing this from the context of blah, 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 And this is what we found, but... So they're being really, really careful, and they're being really, really conservative, and they're doing that so that they can hammer out the main idea of don't be afraid to take a student teacher. Okay. Seems good. We're in this together. For our second segment, we're discussing a democratic critique of scripted curriculum. This is by Julie Fitz and A.C. Nicolaitis, published in the Journal of Curriculum Studies in 2020. I, why don't we just start with what is a scripted curriculum? That's what they start, so I'll take that one. Uh, scripted curriculum uh, is 
uh, it actually has existed in the United States before public education was uh, compulsory, which occurred in 1918. We actually started having scripted curriculums in the 1800s in association with how do you teach people to read programs where uh, they say you essentially do it step by step. You say these things, you give them these texts, you ask these questions, you do it this way. So we've had script curriculums as part of our uh, national uh, practice for a while, but they got a flourishing in, uh, in the sort of turn of the century uh, in the uh, No Child Left Behind era as they, they were seen as a way to give uh, underperforming districts and schools who may not have had the uh, teachers with pedagogical expertise or resources would give them a, a method to account for those deficiencies by giving their kids something that they could rely on that would be consistent regardless of teacher skill level. So it was a way, it was seen as a way to even the playing field, which was particularly important because if those in that era, if those schools didn't improve their uh, student performances, they would lose even further funding. I cued this because I was like, scripted curriculum is a thing that you and I have talked about before. So this will be lively. And then when, uh, when I read this paper, I got really excited. I feel like what's valuable, especially in our current context where, um, you know, the shift to remote uh, instruction or hybrid instruction. There's there's a lot of different approaches to teaching that are happening right now. Uh, a lot of them are new for districts. And so there's a fair proliferation of um, like online or digitally delivered curriculum products in places where they had not been before. And so, uh, so I think that this is an opportune moment to talk about in this crisis um, we're trying to get some stability in place. We're trying to get some answers in place quickly for some instructional challenges that we have, but we need to grapple with um, the, the limitations or the flaws in some of these instructional approaches. So that was kind of like why I, I, why, why I thought this paper might be worth talking about. Uh, what I do know, this is what I do know. And so I am just, I am just going to be... I'm being hypothetical now and possibly a little bit philosophical here. Um, people do not like uncertainty. People do not like it. And when we get dumped a whole big plate of uncertainty as we have in the year 2020, um, that puts a lot of cognitive load and a lot of anxiety in the question, what the hell am I going to do now? And it really is now. There's a sense of urgency to act as a, as a professional, as a teacher right now. It's fall and schools are reconvening right now. What the hell am I going to do? And that question is being asked at every level of every school in the entire planet, or at least in the United States, uh, asking, okay, the, the, the superintendent is asking, what the hell are we going to do now? The, the school boards are asking the question, what the hell are we going to do now? The parents are asking, the kids are asking, the building administrators are asking, and the teachers are asking, what the hell am I going to do now? Uh, and so uh, how do we alleviate as much of that uncertainty as possible? Here's a script. Oh, thank God. I've got something that I can lean on and rely on because I don't know what tomorrow looks like, but I can read this paper today and I can just do that tomorrow and things will be fine. So I think that um, I suspect that in the panic of recognizing that 
we're living in this online virtual environment, which is entirely different from like 85% of the stuff that I was taught in my teacher education program. And uh, I can't do what I rely on normally. And I don't know what it's going to look like, but at least there is a freaking bank of video tutorials that I can show every day in a sequence so that I'm not just flipping out and, and, and speaking gibberish. Uh, and I'm not so afraid. So, I think they're appealing now because we're afraid of uncertainty. Yeah, I, I, th- I think I think that you're exactly um, spot on for where this is coming from. And and scripted curriculum, we I think we should recognize that there there's a, a spectrum, right? There's a there's a, a, a spectrum of fully scripted um, and imposed and prescribed versus uh, fully open and autonomous and individually determined. And so um, I maybe can I, I can easily imagine um, a, uh, an administrator who purchases wholesale, you know, a box of curriculum that is daily lesson plans and reading materials and assignments and grading rubrics and pacing guides and it's got everything in it. And I can hand it to any teacher and tell them do this exactly like it tells you to do. And that would account for the entirety of the instructional um, the instructional demands of that teaching assignment uh, with absolutely no room for professional judgment or autonomy um, or control for the individual teacher implementing that curriculum. And that is absolutely a highly scripted curriculum. Uh, but I think that this, this paper also speaks to some of the other more incremental stages along that spectrum because I have also seen in my career uh, examples of places where you say, okay, we've, we've bought this curriculum product and it's an, uh, it's an online package of materials and it accounts for 80% of what you would be doing in your classroom. And so you're on your own to do assessment stuff. And um, if you want to adapt, if you want to add in like maybe your one favorite project, no big deal, but you need to generally do all of these things. Um, that's pretty scripted. It's not entirely scripted, but it's still pretty scripted. Um, and so the the authors even use some of the vocabulary of you can adapt, you can adapt within this curricular framework. Um, and I think that it goes all the way to even a scenario where you might say, I'm working in a department of 10 uh, subject teachers and the department head has been teaching this subject for 20 years. And so they have their binder of lesson plans and we're all expected to do generally that. And it's not, it's not, a, it's not a commercial purchase. And maybe I can substitute a reading if I want to, uh, that's still pretty scripted. It's not commercially available, but it's it's locally imposed. And, sp- and what's important is it's imposed from outside the individual teacher's classroom. Even if it's just down the hallway, it's outside the walls of their specific classroom. And so what we're really talking about is um, how does it how does a scripting paradigm, whether it be from within a department or within a district or from some external commission, commercial resource, what does scripting a curriculum at any at any degree? Um, how does that fit into a, a democratic set of ideals and principles for the purpose of public education? Um, so that's kind of what the authors were speaking to. Yeah, and you hinted at this earlier about getting excited about this paper. We have talked on this show before that one of the fundamental agreements that you and I have about the value and and uh, almost almost sanctity of public education is that we need to educate a populace so that they can lead themselves and uh, participate in that democracy. It's what it's like the it's one of those 
bottom foundational philosophical bedrocks that you and I are both standing on. And they essentially like that's a that's a they basically write that justification themselves. They're saying we are we are critiquing this scripted curriculum from a from a preparing students to be involved in a democracy perspective. Uh, and that was uh, affirming. And I, you know, I immediately identified with the, the authors is that, yeah, that's why I'm, in fact, literally yesterday, yesterday in my classes, second day of classes for my classes, I was, I told, I gave a lesson on the importance of public education in functioning democracies. Uh, so like, I, hey, I, I, I told my kids this paragraph yesterday, you know? So I was like, I, I just, yep, I'm with you. I'm with you. And, and that was super nice. That was super nice. And so from an analysis standpoint, what the authors did is there's a, there's a published framework from another set of authors uh, about the kinds of value or kinds of influence that, um, that a related movement had um, on these democratic values. And so there's these six things that the, uh, what they called the standards assessment and accountability movement, um, where we're starting to try to do generally things like testing and teacher evaluation to do uh, quality assurance through education. And so there's this previously published framework to evaluate how well um, this is serving our, our identified purposes of public education. And so what the authors did is they took that framework and applied it to scripted curriculum. So there are six things to kind of to worry about when we tried to decide whether scripted curriculum fit our ideals. The first one is equity. Yeah. And um, so this, I, I don't know if you caught it. I don't know if I even said it earlier because I don't know what's going to get edited into this section. But uh, they did something uh, interesting that I thought was clever from a uh, uh, sort of a, um, a critical analysis perspective. They said, let's assume all of the best things about scripted curriculum and the best things about, about democracy. And what is the, what is the, like, uh, the rose-colored glasses perspective of scripted curriculum? They didn't say this, but I felt like what they what was between the lines is they were like, it's going to be really easy to argue that scripted curriculum isn't serving our purposes right now. Um, we think it's worth having a second argument about whether it's even theoretically possible to serve this purpose. So it's not like, a, well, what if things aren't as bad as we think they are? It's a let's assume that you ide achieve the idealized, platonic, perfect version of scripted curriculum could even that serve these purposes or is it fundamentally opposed to these ideals? And so it's, it's not, it's not like a generous interpretation and an ungenerous interpretation. It's a realistic interpretation and theoretical possibilities interpretation. Like, like, can I go faster than the speed of light? No, it is not theoretically possible. Like it, 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 I, it's not that I don't possess a fast enough rocket. It's that the rules of the universe forbid it. Well, let's talk about uh, a scripted curriculum in terms of equity, as you proposed. Theoretically, uh, they could support equity as they provide scaffolding for underprepared teachers in underserved and underfunded schools, and that those scripted curricula could promote equity, equity by controlling for teacher skill and quality of environment uh, by assuring that all students, even disadvantaged students, are presented with the same experience. 
uh, man, I don't even know that. I don't even. I don't even concede that it sounds great. Um, the like the purpose of the purpose of education is not standardized experience, and and I think the authors speak to that a little bit also. But um, yeah, there's a lot to say about this. Um, I was it. Um, I think it was last month we we talked about uh, need supporting practices that basically focused around uh, three sort of pillars: student autonomy. Um, student scaffolding and support uh, and, and expectations, and then finally relationship building. And one of the things, the first thing that scripted curriculum does is remove relationship building. It does. Instead of you responding to the students and changing what you would say and what you would teach based on what you know about your kids, you're providing the same standard independent of who your kids are. You don't need to know your students in order to present a scripted curriculum. You don't. Um, in fact, and you don't need to be uh, leveraging your specialized understanding or experiences uh, that you can draw on for narratives to help uh, 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 bridge the gap between the students' experiences and this content. You you don't matter either. So it it absolutely excises relationship from the learning process. What they point out importantly is that um, standardized curricula are not deployed across the United States education system homogeneously. Scripted curricula are used disproportionately in schools um, that serve students of color and serve low-income communities uh, and schools that are um, producing lower levels of performance on standardized metrics. It assumes that all students need the same thing, and that's just false. The, not just that all students need the same thing, but it also has this implicit valuation that the the dominant paradigm of success and intellect and behavior is the one that is valuable. And so the the standardization is to 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 quash and to assimilate um, and imposes upon them not just one way of knowing, but the currently oppressive dominant way of knowing in an effort of assimilating any other perspective of what's valuable about intellect or capability or creativity or ways of knowing and being. And so um, it actually works contrary. Actually, it's a diametrically opposed to equitable education where it is used most often. And even that statement that it's not used, like it's not used everywhere, again, speaks to it can't possibly be equitable. Uh, equitable. Uh, yeah, it's it's currently not used everywhere, and so it isn't in practice equitable. And even if it was used everywhere, people are not the same, so it can't even theoretically be equ- equitable. Yeah. All right. That's good. Do you want to talk about efficiency? No, but we're gonna. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, the benefit of the doubt. Scripted curricula improve efficiency by reducing the cost of professional development. They provide a baseline which uh, allows teacher behaviors to be evaluated because they ha- there's, a, there's a standard in the script. It controls for the individual teacher quality, and it uh, allows classroom decisions to be made by experienced professionals who know what they are doing. Sounds great. So this, this is a, I don't want to say complicated, but this is one where the authors kind of say, well, if we're talking about achieving efficiency, um, I guess it depends on your definition of efficiency because there are some efficiencies 
they're not really efficiencies that are desirable under a framework of a democratic ideal. So do we want those efficiencies? Yeah, there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of fallacy regarding kind of per- public perception of what's actually happening in, in, in lessons and, and how cognitive development of, of kids work. And it turns out it takes time. They don't make connections and have insights on a schedule that you can just, I'm going to buy this many units of insight points, and then my kids are going to have insights at this rate, and then things are going to be great. You can't really make those predictions. And, and so you, in a sense, you get what you pay for. And, and that's not just money, but it's also time. The time that you spend with kids, working with them matters. Uh, and the time that you spend considering what the kids are saying and their responses matter. Um, and so if you're, if you're like, hey, we're, cut, we're getting ahead on professional development and we're getting ahead on curricular time because we don't have to spend as much time, you know, interacting with our kids and, the, you know, the teacher doesn't have to, like, you know, uh, uh, respond um, spontaneously to students, uh, you're, you're saving money, you're saving time, but you're not then reaping robust cognitive development as a consequence of relationship building supports and scaffold and expectations. Uh, and, um, yeah, you're just not doing it. You're just not doing it. So what are you measuring? If your output is supposed to be more efficient, what is your output that you're saying this, what is it? And so I think in this efficiency conversation, the issue is, when do you cross that line between providing somebody uh, um, assistance in doing those questioning preparations versus scripting instructional techniques that then reduces their participation in their own classroom preparations? Like if I spend all of my time preparing an excellent question for a topic that you and I share, and then I give you, I give you that question it's, there's no way it's going to resonate for you the same way it resonates for me. And there's no way like you're going to identify the moment to use it the way that, that I would intend. And the same is true vice versa. And I don't, I don't think that it's even theoretically possible because that question is born out of the thought processes used to create it. Well, that leads us to the, um, and you've already talked about it, the uh, adapt versus adopt like if you see curricula as a point of something that can inspire you where you can say you know what i'm going to use these elements and then infuse uh my own you know cr- creativity here and my students um input and perspective here and i'm going to slow down the calendar here and then i'm going to skip over this here um that's you exercising uh autonomy and then you feel impassioned with, about your work, and you're more likely to provide that. Uh, you're probably more likely to build relationships with your kids, uh, build support for the expectations you set for them, be inspired and adapt away. That's kind of where I stand. I was kind of. I'm actually excited about your your third sec uh, third segment prompt. Yeah, that's good. This uh, so we're returning to kind of a lighter flavor for our third segment. This is uh, what I have dubbed in my love for naming things in the classroom, um, which is kind of just a really practical question as we're in um, 
uh, like remote and hybrid situations. Uh, a lot of folks are having to teach in a telepresence setting, like in a Zoom call or something. And, uh, you know, when you're like joining a meeting and the first person's there like 60 seconds early and you're going to wait till like two minutes after start time because you got a couple of people like stragglers coming in late. And so what that really means is if you're the organizer, you've got like three or five minutes at the beginning where you don't have everybody showed up yet, but you have some people there. And we're like, if we're in the classroom, people would go like chat with their neighbor or they'd go sharpen their pencil or whatever. Um, but we're all in a Zoom meeting, just kind of staring at each other's faces or black screens or avatars or whatever. Uh, and so like, what do you do with those awkward few minutes at the beginning? Uh, I can tell you what I have done. Uh, and then I'll tell you what I intend to do. And what I have done is nothing. Five minutes of me just staring at them. Like I'm just looking at the little, I'm just, I'm just leaning in and like looking like a, like a, like a scary gargoyle. And I'm even like perturbably still when I'm doing it. So I get this statuesque is his, you know, like, is his, uh, is his video on or like, is there something like, is he connected or did he disconnect? Um, I even had a student, I had a student who's like, so are we just waiting? And I said, yes. And that was it. That was the entire exchange for the five minutes. Because, because you know, uh, what's interesting in, in, in our implementation, they um, were using our uh, our learning management system and gradebook uh, program to launch the Zoom meetings, but you can't pre-launch them. So if the bell time is like 9.30, the button to start the meeting doesn't start until 9.30 sharp. So you can't pre-start a meeting. So... You start it, and then it's going to take them five minutes to get into the meeting. And so we're just sitting there for five minutes. So if the class starts at 9.30, I actually don't actually start the class until 9.35, and I've just been waiting. But I recently gave them a survey, uh, a Google form that, you know, conveniently fed all the information into a spreadsheet uh, about, you know, personal information about them. Uh, and I've I, I've already started doing this, but now during the five minutes, I'm going to find the five minute time when someone jumps in. I can review that spreadsheet and say, "Oh, you you like skateboarding? I used to skateboard in college." So in the private Zoom chat, I'm going to start conversations with kids about connections, personal connections that they've shared with me that I've had in my past so that we can start building relationships. Even if even if we're just quietly waiting, it's a private personal relationship building opportunity. And I, I clearly can't message all of the kids in the class every five minute period. But if I, you know, you know, I can, I can start curating those relationships because that's really a, a difference in, in over zoom, uh, than, than in the classroom. In, in the classroom, if I say something funny, one kid's laugh, everyone hears it. And the, the whole room is elevated, but in zoom, I say something funny. You, no one hears a laugh. No one laughs. They may laugh, but they're all muted because in a, in a classroom of 30 kids, the, the the respectful standard thing to do is to keep you muted. So nobody feels that elevated thing. One person might laugh, but it's just one person laughing uh, in, in their own room and nobody hears it. So the relationship building and the cohesiveness, um, it's hard for me to build a community via Zoom, but I can still leverage those tools to build a, a personal connection between myself and the students. And so I need to go as hard on that as I possibly can to try to make up for the other interpersonal actions that we don't have. And that's how I intend to use that five minute silent time. 
Yeah, I think that's really good. And the the emphasis on those transition opportunities um, to make the personal connections, I think, is the the high point of this conversation. I uh, I don't have a classroom to teach with students this semester, uh, but I have done some professional development with teachers. I've done some teaching events in remote spaces here, even in this um, this emergency time, and I did basically the same thing. Uh, not the not the statuesque gargoyle because that's not my brand. I'm I'm more of a like a I'm a, this odd hybrid of I'm a, like a very goofy casual with like oddly precise and professional affect. And so like it's this weird it's this weird mix of those two things. And so um, I'm much more of a much more of a, a casual in conversation. While like hey what's up I see on your shirt you've got a, an image of a frog. Did you know there was a study that was published yesterday about frog genetics in the Amazon that was up? Let me tell you a little bit about like. It, it, it was, it's that kind of flavor. And so, um, but basically the same idea of linking to the specific contributions of participants is what I think is really um, the compelling opportunity here. So like you mentioned your Google form, I did something similar where we would have come in and like uh, entry prompts of like, what do you think about this thing? Or it could even be something with us with students um, completely off topic. Like what's your favorite genre of music? Like when I had a physical classroom, uh, we would regularly have conversations about what kinds of music students enjoyed. And I really like to use music coming in. I know a lot of colleagues that I've been talking to um, have music playing in those first few minutes. And so students can start to make contributions of you should check out this band or you should uh, try this new song. In fact, some of the music that I really like to listen to today, I only know about because I tried based on students' suggestions that I got. And I was like, oh, I don't really like Screamo. And they're like, you should check, you should check out We Came as Romans. And I'm like, okay. Yeah, I do kind of like this. Cool. I'm going to listen to them now. It's so, like I can still credit the specific student who suggested them to me. And so like using those contributions to shape our interactions immediately communicates that their contributions matter. And so like what you're describing about the poll and then showing you're reading it, I did exactly the same thing where I had a prompt question. And so as, as uh, participants were filtering in, I was reading their comments and we were dialoguing about it, like, oh, you, you made in your in your comment towards the end, you referenced that you just got a dog. My wife loves dogs. Let's talk about dogs for a moment. And just recognizing that their contributions are not thrown into the void, that they are into my eyeballs and that I care about those submissions and that I'm responding to and using and, and that it's shaping their experience. And especially if you can do it quickly, that, that communicates something important to your students right now. And so I think that 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 message of community building by recognizing their contributions is a, is a really solid piece of advice. How was the beer? My beer was sad because it wasn't in a glass. I like I never got over that. Yeah, you you are literally failing to follow directions, right? What I did, uh, what was interesting to me is that um, though Guinness is the first stout I've ever drank, I didn't know until this this can nitrogenated for smoothness. They put it right on the can, and, and it's, I'm sure it's always been true. I just never realized it. I was like, man, that the thing about the Guinness is that it's just so smooth, and now I know, oh, it's because it's a nitro. It's always been a nitro. My first stout has been a nitro. Maybe I have been misattributing 
qualities of stouts because this was my first one. So it was my anchoring experience. And so I have sort of given it as the definitive standard by which all stouts are compared. I have overemphasized smoothness probably as a stout uh, quality uh, when it's really a nitrogenation quality in this particular stout. So I thought that was interesting for me to, to acknowledge. Hey, so thanks for tuning in for another month. We know these are exceptionally challenging times for educators and for everybody right now, uh, but what you do is important. We're all in this together. We'll see you next month. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research and struggle well.